0: Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, uh, we are in Romans chapter 7. Uh, we find ourselves in sort of the middle of the book of Romans as we've picked it back up from where we were a few months ago. We're going to specifically this morning be looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, just this first section of chapter 7. Uh, you can think about the book of Romans in four sections, and I did this a long time ago when we started the book of Romans, but I thought it might be helpful to bring it back up again. The first section of Romans is usually thought to be chapters 1 through 4, and in that first section, Paul's really taking up this topic of God's righteousness. Uh, The topic that he's looking at is what does it mean for God to be faithful, to fulfill his covenant promises to his people, this righteousness of God and how that righteousness has been revealed through Jesus. So the story of Jesus has revealed God's fulfillment to that covenant. This is chapters one to four. So then a sort of natural next question from that, chapters 5 through 8, which we find ourselves in the middle of, is what is the consequence, what does it look like for Jesus to have fulfilled this promise to God's people? And for Paul, he takes this section up under this theme of a new humanity, that the fulfillment through Jesus of his promises to his people has created a new people, a new humanity, a new Adam, if you will. Eventually, once we get through this section, 5 through 8, which we find ourselves sort of moving into the conclusion of, and then in chapters 9 through the next section, Paul's going to take up, so what then does this mean for Israel, which is kind of a natural question, right? Uh, Jesus has revealed the righteousness, the faithfulness of God to his people. That's created a new people under Jesus and welcomed Gentiles into this people of God. So many reading Paul's letter would have said, so what about old Israel? What about God's people that are not following him through Jesus. So that'll become an important part of what Paul's doing in the book of Romans. But we find ourselves in the middle of that second section this new humanity, this new people under Jesus, how the gospel has created this new people, this new nation that you and I, by faith, find ourselves a part of, this new identity. And so Paul is looking for ways to express what it means to be a part of this new humanity. Last week, the image that he used was this image of slavery, that once we had been slaves to sin, but now through Jesus we have become slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness. And I pointed out last week that what Paul was doing, what he's saying in this image of slavery, was that we, by the gospel, had been freed. We were freed not just from the old way of sin, the consequences of sin, but we had been freed into being participants in this new people under Jesus. So one way to say that is we oftentimes think about freedom as being freedom from. I'm freed from the consequences of my sin. I'm freed from this eternal destiny of hell. But Paul likes to think about freedom as not just freedom from, but freedom to, freedom to participate, freedom to be in relationship with God, freedom to live out God's law in a fuller and richer way. So now in chapter 7, what Paul does is he's continuing to sort of reach for these images, these analogies, to help you understand what this transition has been through Christ into this new people, this new humanity. First, this image of slavery, and then as he turns to Romans chapter 7, it transitions to this image of marriage. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be reading, like I said, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It begins in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers... But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Last week when we were looking at this analogy of slavery that Paul uses, uh, he broke into the middle of that argument, that, that line of reasoning he was making, to sort of point out that he was in a sense reaching, trying to find an image that adequately captured this transformative experience of the gospel. So you might remember Paul says this, I'm reading it in the NIV because it's uh, I think a little easier, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, Paul said this last week, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. We get a sense that that's what Paul is trying to do in both of these sections, talking about this radical, life-changing experience of being reborn into the Spirit through Christ, the way the gospel has reworked our whole person and identity, for Paul describing it as now being new human creations, new humanity. Most of us look at our lives and say, uh, I'm struggling to actually understand what difference that makes. I get the idea, but uh, does it, am I actually a new human? Are we a different kind of humanity like Paul is saying? I'm still struggling with sin. Uh, there's no more money in my bank account because I made this decision. I still find myself getting sick. There's still a plague facing the, the world. Uh, what does this new humanity thing that Paul is talking about actually look like? And so Paul says what he's attempting to do is reach into everyday life, And pull out images, limited as they may be, to help us get a sense for how drastic this change has been to who we are in Christ. And so he does that here in this chapter again, stretching, reaching, trying to find another image that can help convey just how much has changed because we now follow Christ. So Paul uses all of these analogies to put together this image And like Paul had used the image of slavery before, here he turns his attention to this image, an everyday image of marriage. Now, what Paul recognizes is that under Israel's law, if a woman was to lose her spouse to death, everybody understood that under the law, she was freed to remarry. That original promise, that covenant of marriage had been broken by death, and she was free to remarry under the law. Paul sees in this kind of monumental shift of remarriage an image that helps us begin to pull back that curtain of just how much the gospel has changed and transformed us now through the work of Christ. Now, on this image, I realize all of us have different experiences with marriage. Some in the church I know have lost a spouse and know very well this analogy that Paul is driving towards. Others may not be married. Some of you have been married for decades, some for just a few number of years. Some of you maybe have faced unbelievable challenges in marriages. Maybe some of you would say that it's all been bliss every minute of every day. I don't know. Maybe that's your experience with it. But most of us have a sense of what marriage is and the massiveness that the marriage covenant represents in transforming who we are as individuals. When the Bible describes this image of marriage, you remember the common image that's used of two people, two flesh, becoming one. That there's a kind of transformation that takes place in the covenant of marriage that two individual people put to death their individual identity— and instead take on a new identity, a new person, combined as one. Most who have been married for a significant period of time will acknowledge that there is very little of your life that isn't impacted by that decision to take up marriage commitment. A marriage impacts your time, your resources, your emotions, your perspective of the future, your identity, your name itself. There's very little of who you are as a person that isn't transformed by this decision to move into this covenant of marriage. But as Paul points out, when a spouse dies within a marriage, that can be a strange transition. So much of your life having been formed by that commitment, nobody who loses a spouse is flippant about the transition as if you could sort of say, well, I guess it's on to the next thing. We understand that too much has been impacted, informed, and changed by that marriage, not to be impacted by that loss. That person is never fully gone, just like anyone who loses a family member or a spouse or a close friend. There's too much time, too much invested in that relationship for it to simply disappear. And even though some may remain single or some may remarry, that old reality is always a part still of that new reality. Here's what I think is so remarkable about Paul using this as an image of how the gospel changes us. Paul compares how the spouse of the law, this old covenant relationship that we were under, has died in Christ and how we have been now remarried to Christ in a new covenant. Paul does this because Paul is forced in the book of Romans to do a kind of tightrope walk with the people making accusations about his preaching. His accusers hear the way he's talked about how Christ has transitioned us from a covenant of the law to this covenant of grace. And what they hear Paul saying is that he's anti-law, that he's telling people that the law doesn't matter anymore, that the law is gone. They accuse Paul of freeing people to live where there's no rules, no expectations, no right or wrong, freedom in Christ to do as they please. Paul says... The better image is like this image of someone losing a spouse and remarrying. Here's what's so remarkable about it. The law has passed away. But it doesn't mean that all of that life previously lived under the law doesn't continue to have meaning and value and significance for who we are. That time... That story, God's working through the law, is carried on. It's good memories, it's bad memories, the way it's shaped us as a people, informed us, is brought with us into this new relationship with Christ. But we are no longer under the obligation of that relationship to the law. Our obligation has shifted to an obligation to Christ. The woman who remarries, in Paul's analogy, takes with them that whole previous marriage, all that it made them and formed them to be, and carries it with them who they are into this new relationship, this new marriage. Um, I think that's a pretty smart argument for Paul to make, a way of pointing out that though we're no longer under the obligation of the law, committed to the law, we still carry with us the story of God having given that law to his people. We still carry with us the way the law had revealed to Israel who God was and his character and his purposes and intent for his people. The law had been given for a purpose. It was divinely given, and it still instructs and reveals who God is and his character, even though we no longer live under its obligation. Now we find ourselves instead married to Christ. For Paul, this new marriage has that same fundamental reorienting of identity and priorities and resources and future perspective and name that any marriage has with it. Anytime we take up this new covenant of marriage, just like we do with Christ, who we are is fundamentally changed by that new promise. We have to be careful not to push the analogy too far For Paul does recognize that the fruit of this old covenant, this old way of living under the law, the consequences of that covenant was the fruit of death, the experience of death. Um, You see it in verse 5 if you look at chapter 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In this previous way of living under the law, Our commitment, our identity, our attention, focused on the law, the fruit that that focus bore, the consequences of it, were the experience of our own brokenness and the inevitability of death. Um, All you have to do to understand what Paul is saying, as strange as that may sound, is look back on Israel's history to recognize how true this was. We touched on some of this last week as well. Um, You remember when God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and called them out into the wilderness, called Moses up on Mount Sinai to give to them the law, the law being the thing that solidified his relationship to them as his people. What was the very first commands that God had given to Moses for this new covenant with his people? You should have no other God besides me. You shouldn't make for yourself an idol of anything. And while God is literally making this covenant with these commands, this law, what is Israel doing down at the bottom of the mountain? They're ripping off their jewelry and melting it down to cast for themselves an idol of gold, a golden calf. (laughs) The law that God is giving them on Mount Sinai is literally revealing their own brokenness, their own sinfulness in the very moment. And it plays out over and over and over again. As they wander into the wilderness, God says over and over, don't take for yourself wives from the nations around you. And as he's commanding it, they're literally hiding wives, women from other nations in their tent. When they're entering the promised land, God says, don't plunder the cities and take for yourself its riches. It'll be committed to me. And what are they doing? They're digging holes in their tents and hiding the plunder from God. We saw it last week. God calls them out of Egypt and says, trust me, follow me. I'm your deliverer. And what do they do? They complain, why did you bring us out here to die? Why can't we go back to Egypt? Everything was better before. They never take the promised land fully, as God had told them. They demand a king so that they can look and be like the nations around them. They end up a divided people at civil war with one another. They end up losing everything that they had been given by God as they erected idol places of worship all over Israel and bowed their knees to other gods. The consequences... They end up conquered and enslaved and hauled off yet again into captivity. Some of them would have said, but they had the law. They were the people who God had given his law to. But it's almost as if the more God gave them law, the more they disobeyed that law. The more God revealed himself through his law, the more they revealed themselves to be incapable of truly carrying it out, of living for him. And so Paul points this out by saying, the law reveals their sinfulness. It shows that the fruit of our life under the law is death. That the more God tells us we should and shouldn't do, the more we reveal that we do exactly the opposite. The law functions not to rescue us or save us, but to expose us, to demonstrate to us our own brokenness, our own self-dependence. Paul says that that old identity associated with that old marriage, exposed over and over our own sinfulness and the inevitability of death under that obligation. But this new marriage brings with it, as Paul will describe it, a new fruit, a newness through the Spirit, um, one of my favorite books on marriage, Tim Keller wrote a book uh, many of you have read, I think, on the meaning of marriage. And he says something really interesting in the book, specifically about marriages between you know, men and women today. But I think it fits into Paul's analogy really well for what Paul's trying to say in chapter 7. Keller writes this in his book on marriage. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from the pretense, humbles us out of our self righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Um, what Keller's describing is two ways that our marriages can go wrong one is that we are fully known but because of all that is known about us, not loved or accepted. The other is that we might be loved and accepted, but in a superficial kind of way that doesn't actually know who we are as a person. If you're in a marriage that doesn't have love, but only leaves you constantly feeling exposed and tore down, It's a terrible experience. You constantly feel insecure, jeopardized, devalued. You may be fully known for all of your weaknesses and failures, but that costs you love instead of finding it in the midst of it. This is what happens when we turn our faith towards the law, when we live out a kind of religious obedience that's constantly trying to prove ourselves. The relationship, this old relationship under the law, was not primarily about love but a kind of clinical agreement, we do what we are supposed to do. You're known by what you get right or wrong Is the kind of religious way of living. Do good, it'll go well. Do bad, it won't go well. And many of us find ourselves still sort of locked into this old way of living, religious obedience. We find ourselves doing it motivated by control. If we can control our behavior, we can control the results. But there's an opposite risk that Keller points out in this image of marriage. There's this religious obedience identity, but there's also a kind of free love and easy grace identity. It's what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's to be loved, but not really known. Imagine if Adam and Eve, in the moment that they had sinned, opened their eyes and Jesus had come down and died and they were saved and the whole thing was fixed. Adam and Eve didn't have enough time to even realize that they had sinned or the consequences or the brokenness of it, and they sort of say to themselves, well, that was pretty easy. I guess God loves us. He fixed it as soon as we messed it up. The Bible doesn't give us that story. Instead, it gives us this story, a long story, of how sin plagues humanity, of how incapable we are of solving that sin problem ourselves. And it builds that story over generations to that final culmination in which Jesus sacrifices himself for us. The story it gives us is a full accounting for who we are. We are fully known in this biblical story. Our failures, our shortcomings, our struggles, our weaknesses, and yet the culmination of that full revelation of who we are is also a revelation of how much God loves us, willing to sacrifice for us, even as we are fully known. That looks hard and is hard to live out in any marriage, this combination of being fully honest about who we are and yet fully loved and accepted in the midst of it. But that's what Paul is saying characterizes this new marriage to Christ. We have the value of the law, that old marriage, the death that it revealed in us, the truth that it exposed in us, the way in which it forces us to look in the mirror, a common analogy for how the law worked, to see who we fully are, who we really are before God. But we also have this love revealed by God's grace in the full knowledge of our brokenness, his sacrifice for us. This new marriage to Christ represents this being fully known And yet fully loved. The impact for Paul is verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What does that mean? We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Some will translate it we serve in the newness of the Spirit. When Ashley and I first got married, it's been 11 years ago, thinking back on our wedding, as some of you will probably feel the same, uh, it's really, that whole day is kind of a blur. There's so much going on, you're so nervous about what's happening, that you try to hold on to little bits and pieces of it. I remember very well me being nervous before the wedding started. I remember very well Ashley being nervous standing on stage during the wedding. I remember as soon as the reception was over, we went to Pizza Hut because we had both been so busy talking to people. We hadn't eaten all day, and we were starving, so Pizza Hut was the first thing we went to. I don't remember much of the sermon that Jim Bradford preached when he officiated our wedding, and I try to remind myself when I conduct weddings, most people won't remember what I say as well. It's a good reminder. But I do remember one thing that he said that I'll never forget. He said when he was preaching our sermon, up until this day— You've been asking yourself, is this person right for me? But today, that question will forever change to, how can I be right for this person? What he captured in that succinct statement was the fundamental shifting and reorienting of who you are as a person within this covenant of marriage. Before you ask the question, what's good for me? How will this impact me? Is this person right for me? What's the future look like for me? But the moment you step into that covenant, that promise, you shift your perspective to how can I be good for this person? How can I be right for this person? How can I die to myself and live for the good of someone else, for this marriage? That's all here in what Paul is saying about this transition, this marriage to Christ. We no longer serve by the letter of the law, by self interest, by an attempt to avoid consequences, by getting a blessing because we've done right, our eyes constantly fixed on us and our own behavior. Are we living up to the standard? But instead, we now ask a different question a heart that is brought to life, to newness, out of love, the excitement of this commitment. How can I now live into this new identity, this new covenant? Christ, For Paul, he puts it as this phrase, to serve out of the newness of the Spirit. To serve. To give myself. As Paul said last week, not for wages, for the wages of sin in the old way was death, but in light of this free gift, this grace that characterizes this new relationship, how do I then give back and serve with who I am To give myself for the good of this new spouse, Christ, to do what the law before couldn't out of a new energy and a new passion and a new heart, to live out of this new name, this new identity, this new people formed by his sacrifice. This new covenant requires only one thing that we say yes, we accept this grace, this identity, this marriage and that we find who we are shaped and transformed like we do in earthly marriages, but in a greater way now to this eternal marriage, Christ, the bridegroom who comes to receive us, his bride. Marriage is often one of the favorite images that the Bible uses for this relationship with Christ. Some of us may find it strange to imagine ourselves brides. For some of us, it may come more naturally. But as Paul says, this earth image, this everyday image of marriage, gives us just a taste, a starting point, a beginning place to understand just how much has changed through Christ, just how much of us has been reoriented and shifted by Christ, and to be welcomed into this hope that we have of though we are fully known, though this old way has bore fruit of death, that in Christ there is a newness of the Spirit that bears life. Paul reaches for any analogy he can get his hands on to help you grasp just how big this transformation is. And for us, the challenge is to hold on to it. The very fact that Paul has to remind us of this image hints to us of the fact that it is easy to lose it, to slip back into that old way of living, to slip back into that old covenant, that old identity, and to miss the opportunity of what Christ is doing now in this commitment. Let's close in prayer this morning and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning grateful for these images that you use to pull us into what we have in you. God, we know how easy it is to receive you in salvation in a moment, to catch a glimpse of this transformation by your grace, and then as we live, God, to gradually slip back into our old ways, to become obsessed with ourselves and our own self-interest, what's in it for us, to take back for ourselves our own name formed by our own attempts at religious obedience. And God, to miss the freedom, this freedom too, this freedom to be your people, to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of your grace and mercy. And so God, I pray, as Paul indicates, that there might be within our own hearts a newness, a newness of the Spirit, that we could hold on to it, that what was new once won't become old or stale, but that God, by your Spirit, through our worship, you would continue to move our hearts to receive what we have in you. God, as so many of us do in marriage, to keep that fire burning, that God, you would do the same in us with you, that this relationship would not become stagnant, but that God, we would continually be finding new things and good things that we have in you. So we worship you this morning we do it trusting that your spirit will work that in our hearts show us again what we have in you move our hearts again for the salvation that we have in you change us again give us this new name this new identity that we would be fully known but yet fully loved and accepted by you and in that god we would find a kind of humility and confidence to live and to serve and to give of ourselves to you and to your kingdom and your people. We do it this morning as an act of worship, as we sing, but we carry it with us into our lives as we go from this place. Let your spirit be upon us as we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray.